0: Mother Earth is psychedelic. Her body is covered with psychoactive, sacred medicine. Can psychedelics help us become more conscious and loving parents, partners, lovers, and leaders? Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Carlin, the Psychedelic Mom, a mother and entrepreneur partnering with Mother Earth's sacred plant medicines to heal, awaken, and learn to live in alignment to my truth. Psychedelic literally means soul revealing. What reveals the soul to oneself is psychedelic. I invite you to join me in deep conversations with leaders, healers, seekers, and other parents. I will share my journey, the wisdom, practices, medicines, and mistakes that have changed my life and personal stories of others on this wild path. We are the medicine needed to birth the more beautiful world we know is possible. Welcome to today's episode of the Psychedelic Mom podcast. I'm so excited to be here today with Dr. Ghoul Dolan. She earned her MD and PhD from Brown University, which is right from my hometown, Rhode Island, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and completed postdoctoral training in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford University. Dr. Dolan is currently an associate professor of neuroscience and neurology at Johns Hopkins. And you have some amazing studies that you have done. One of the studies that we're going to talk about today came out of your lab in 2018. And it was, as we said earlier, you have turned octopus into psychonauts and rave partiers in a way. You used MDMA... (laughs) to study whether it would have the same effects as it does on humans. And the other thing that we really want to get into today is this current research that you're doing. And this really talks about kind of opening up, I think, the brain to learn more. The parts of the brain that we thought were shut down and only had a certain period to learn, maybe open up more, but you'll explain this all to us. So welcome here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, it's good to see you. So what in the world made you decide to serve an octopus MDMA? I study social
1: behaviors. My whole lab studies social behaviors, and a lot of species are social. And octopuses are sort of notoriously asocial. So whatever you might have learned from my octopus teacher, which is mostly a beautiful fiction Octopuses are not social animals. If you put them in another tank with another animal, they will viciously attack and and most of the time kill each other. And so they're asocial most of their lives. But during these brief periods of reproduction, some species will become sort of temporarily, they will release that asociality, right? And so they'll accept a mate and for about two minutes be okay with having another animal nearby. And then they'll go right back to being asocial in attack mode. And so, you know, in principle, it seemed possible that, you know, they may have the brain circuitry that enables them to be social, but that outside of the reproductive period, that circuit gets turned off or turned down and that probably has some evolutionary reason why that's adaptive for those animals. But the bigger question really was, look, octopuses are separated from us by 650 million years of evolution. I mean, just to give some perspective on how long that is, in the time period between when we had a common ancestor with octopuses, dinosaurs have come and gone, right? Um, We're more closely related to a starfish than we are to an octopus, right? They are really, really different from us. Their brains look nothing like our brains. And so the question was, given that difference in their brain anatomy, what would the effect of this drug, which is totally synthetic, it's not something that they're encountering in their environment, have the same effect as it does in humans and and mice? And it did. So when we gave MDMA to the octopuses, and it's octopuses, not octopi, because it comes from Greek, not Latin. Um, and so I, I feel the need to say that because, you know, there's a lot of people think I'm just messing it up over and over and over again. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the octopuses, when they had, before they had the MDMA, they spent almost no time in the chamber that contained the other octopus. But after MDMA, they spent significantly more time in the chamber that had the other octopus in it. And so, it wasn't just the amount of time, you know, anecdotally, we also observed that they were changing their body position and were just much more sort of relaxed and and spending time in that chamber. And their, their body posture suggested that they were comfortable being there rather than the way that they are when... They're not an MDMA where they might explore the other chamber, but they're, you know, sort of very tense and just probing very quickly and then coming right back. And so, you know, really the body posture and everything else suggested that, in fact, just like in mice, just like in humans, this drug had this same prosocial property in octopuses. And what that really the profound implication of that result is, is that probably many of you have seen you know, on television commercials, on news reports, on the internet, you know, somebody will give a drug or do some manipulation to a human, and then they'll show you a picture of the fMRI and a side view of the brain, and there'll be a little blob that's lit up, and they'll say, see, that's where that's where LSD is working, or that's where Tetris is working, or that's where the main problem in name condition disease X, right? And that kind of what I call blobology you know really relies on the fact that we're making inferences about function based purely on anatomical evidence and what the octopus experiment told us is is that that anatomy is maybe not as informative as we thought it was because an octopus doesn't have a default mode network it doesn't have a nucleus accumbens it doesn't have an amygdala. So all of the brain regions that people have pointed to and said, these are the ones that are important for MDMA and psychedelic drugs functions don't even exist in an octopus. And yet they're able to have the same behavioral response, which suggests that the mechanism is really sort of at a deeper molecular level and that those brain regions are just one instantiation of how those molecules get those behavioral jobs done.
0: Whoa, that actually is blowing my mind a little bit. Steph and I just interviewed Zeus Tipido, who spoke about how psychedelics, what happens in the visual cortex, right? And how all of this was happening in the visual cortex and all these parts of the brain. And then you're saying, basically, that all that we've known and all that science has been pointing to in, oh, it's touching these receptors and turning off this and turning on that in the brain is different than what we thought. I think the receptors still matter,
1: right? So MDMA is able to do this in an octopus, we think, because the thing that MDMA binds to, the serotonin transporter is molecularly genetically conserved in the genome of an octopus right so the place that mdma binds to is the same and it's similar enough in terms of molecular architecture that it recognizes it what i'm saying is is that the types of sort of brain imaging studies that people are putting so much inferential weight to really aren't as meaningful as we think they are, right? So yes, it's the way that human brains are doing it. They seem to be activating those visual cortical areas. And and just to be clear, you know, what what Zeus is looking at is the acute effects and he's making inferences about anatomy from a pretty low resolution technique, which is fMRI imaging. Unfortunately in humans that's the best you can do, but it's, you know, compared to what we can do in a mouse, it's like super slow, super slow resolution, you know, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of neurons in each single voxel. Whereas, you know, in a mouse brain with whole cell patch clamp recording, we can look at a single channel if we wanted to on a single neuron, right? So the resolution, the speed is much higher, But even then, even in mouse studies, when we do things like circuit mapping and we say, oh, okay, the nucleus accumbens is receiving, you know, oxytocin neurons from the hypothalamus. And when MDMA binds to the serotonin transporter, it causes those oxytocin neurons to release that kind of circuit mapping that we're doing. Essentially, we're doing kind of a similar philosophical exercise in terms of saying the function is related to this particular arrangement anatomically of this circuit. But what the octopus is telling us is, is that that anatomical arrangement is just an accident of evolutionary history, that if you have the molecules, it doesn't matter if you have a visual cortex or if you have an amygdala or if you don't have those things and instead you have a optic lobe and a vertical lobe. I mean, another example of this in the octopus is that when humans metabolize MDMA, The liver breaks it down and it makes these byproducts. And one of the byproducts that it makes is also metabolically active. So if you take MDMA on day one, on day two, if you take a much lower dose of MDMA, you'll still get a much bigger response, similar to like the full dose, because that metabolite that the breakdown product of MDMA is still active. And so that dose response is called the supralinear dose response curve. And it happens because the liver of the mechanics of the way that the liver is breaking down using an enzyme called cytochrome P450 to break down MDMA. Well, it turns out an octopus doesn't have a liver. It just doesn't have a liver. Instead, it has these cells that are called hepatopancreatic cells which also make this enzyme cytochrome P450. And anecdotally, we have some evidence that just like in humans, just like in mice, the MDMA dose response is super linear because the molecule is there even though there's no liver. So it's kind of the same
2: idea. So is the upshot of this experiment that – and I may be making a really big jump here – that consciousness comes down to molecules – (laughs) <laughs> in a way.
1: Yeah, I guess you could say that. Um I, I Basically, what I would say is is that, you know, when I first started working in this field, there was a lot of push that we can't study the really interesting parts of psychedelics like consciousness in an animal because what is an animal seeing God even look like, right? And that's why so many of the people, so many of the early studies of psychedelics have focused so heavily on, things like fmri imaging even though as a community we know that that technique has major limitations it's really hard to interpret fmri imaging because in a single voxel you could have inhibitory inputs you could have excitatory inputs they could be doing opposite things and you it would look like you were getting no response you know it doesn't have the resolution to tell you really much of anything in terms of what's happening at the level of neurons. In fact, it's not even measuring neuronal activity, it's measuring blood flow, right? And we're inferring neuronal activity based on blood flow, but it's not the neuronal activity itself, right? So despite the fact that it has major limitations, people were doing it because they were like, well, we wanna study the interesting questions and you you can only ask the interesting questions in humans. And I think what the octopus experiment really challenged is that notion that we couldn't understand what's going on with these interesting big questions about psychedelics and consciousness by studying the effects in animals, because it's really challenging. Those inferences we're making about anatomy equals
0: function. So what did that do for you? Just in the sense of like you went into this studying it, I know that you were kind of a renegade when it came to, um, well, not only serving an octopus, uh, MDMA, but creating your own degree pathway in college. And I know at some point you were interested in philosophy and consciousness, and now we're just bringing up consciousness here and animals and the octopus. Did doing this experiment change some vital perspective that you had or some historical idea that you had about life, about consciousness, about anatomy? I've always been interested in
1: sort of the big questions. And I don't think the octopus experiment really is the one that changed my feeling that neuroscience would be Able to answer some of those big questions. So you're right. When I was an undergraduate at Duke University, I was I designed my own major because they were like, "No, you can't do a triple major." Um, (laughs) So design your own because they have this program. And so I, you know, brought together neuroscience and philosophy and linguistics and art and just kind of mishmashed it together and did you know comparative perspectives on the mind. And the idea was to try and answer the this question of what is consciousness from different perspectives and see what different perspectives could bring to the table. And I remember taking a class called Drugs, Brain and Behavior, which really radically shifted me away from philosophy and more towards neuroscience. Because when I saw the LSD molecule sitting right next to the serotonin molecule and saw the physical similarities between them, it occurred to me that, well, you know, here's a molecule that radically shifts our sense of consciousness. It puts us in this altered state of consciousness. And that a molecule can do this really convinced me that basically. What all of this philosophy around consciousness comes down to is the molecules, right? And so I decided I wanted to really focus on neuroscience, really focus on molecular, cellular, synaptic mechanisms. But at the time, so this was around 1996, 97, when I was trying to make my decision about what to do next... You know, psychedelics was still kind of a taboo thing. You know, it wasn't it wasn't what serious people did in their research. You know, a lot of neuroscientists were interested in psychedelics, but you know, kind of talked about it in back rooms, and it's not like openly discussed as like what we all wish we were studying, right? And so I kind of backburnered it, and I didn't really think about it seriously again. Until much later when, you know, MAPS actually approached us and said, would you guys be interested in studying psychedelics in the context of autism? And we had, we started the conversation there. But going back to the octopus stuff, I think the thing that really was transformative for me was really more about my career at that point with the octopus research, because you know we had already been working on psychedelics we'd already been focused on MDMA in mice and trying to understand the therapeutic effects and trying to understand its relationship to the critical periods result that we had which I'll, which I'll explain a little bit more in a bit but it was i had just started my lab it was really hard to get funding funding a, a lab a research lab you know it's expensive and you just have to write literally dozens of grants and the kinds of grants I was writing I just kept getting rejected and rejected and rejected and they would tell me things like this will never work or this is too crazy of an idea and even when I was writing what I considered to be the most conservative grant I could think of they were like no way that'll work right and it wasn't until until the papers were published that they would be like, okay, well, maybe it'll work, right? <laughs> so, like, I was having to I, – I really couldn't get it conservative enough, and I was struggling and feeling demoralized and feeling like, wow, this is what I gave up. You know, I sacrificed so much to be here. I thought I had made it to the finish line when I opened up my own lab. You know, I thought I was getting finally to do the creative experiments that I've always wanted to do. And here I am being blocked by the funding situation. I was feeling so depressed and so like ready to quit and just be like, you know what, I'm going to go do something else. I'm still young. I have plenty of chances to, to change it up. And then I was like, well, before I leave, you know, let me just... Let me, I'm curious about this octopus thing. And really the reason to do the experiment was just out of a sheer sense of curiosity. So, you know, some people get annoyed when you say you did a re- experiment for curiosity only, but, you know, I'm a big believer in curiosity-based research. It's where all the coolest ideas come out. And scientists became scientists because they were curious. And we would never have any of the practical things that came out of research like PCR tests, if there wasn't a scientist who was curious to know why it is that bacteria can survive super hot temperatures in Yellowstone hot springs, right? That's how we dis- how Thomas Brock discovered the enzyme that is required for the PCR test, right? It was just total curiosity-based science. And I'm a big believer in that. And in that moment when I was like getting ready to quit, you know, I just needed to do something that didn't have a practical application that wasn't really gonna solve any big world problems. It was just, I wonder what would happen. And that's really what happened Why we did the octopus experiment. And then it worked and it was just, what? Like, this is crazy. This should never have worked. You know, I was totally expecting it not to work. I thought we were going to maybe see some kind of like amphetamine-like response, but whatever, it was fun and worth doing anyway. And then it worked. And that's when it really sort of dawned on me that, gosh, all of this overemphasis on circuit mapping, all of this overemphasis on mapping of the neural connections between two different brain regions, all of this focus on brain imaging is really kind of leading us to a false sense of feeling like we understand when really we don't.
2: How did the, I don't know if the right way to ask is the to ask first, how did the critical period studies come about? Or was it the search for the master key and which eventually it seems you found. And I mean, diving into your world, there's a There's a long history that I probably don't have the time and the brain with to understand totally, but I know this has been something that scientists have been thinking about for a really long time, and you seem to have found it.
1: Yeah, so the concept of a critical period is actually pretty old, so it was first described by Conrad Lorenz in 1935. And the first critical period that was ever described was a social critical period. It was actually, since we're on psychedelic moms, it was about bonding to your mom. And it was snow geese right after they hatch. So within 48 hours of hatching, they will farm a lasting attachment typically to their mom and If the mom is not around, if it's, you know, another flying object or a kooky scientist, they'll form that attachment to that other thing that's moving around in their immediate
0: vicinity. So crazy. Is that where that book, Are You My Mother, came from? (laughs) Probably. I don't know that book, but yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I thought the same thing. I'm like, oh, that's that book.
0: I think it is. Some abandoned animal goes up to everything after and thinks it's its mother. Oh,
1: maybe. Okay, yeah. So this this was discovered in 1935 and after that 48 hours is over, they won't form that attachment, right? So, you know, after hatching, 48 hours passes and you would show the little snow geese another moving object, they won't form that attachment. And so that little window of time, that 48 hours right after hatching, where they're really really sensitive to their environment and they can learn these lifelong attachments Conrad Lorenz called that the critical period, okay? And it's turned out that since he made that discovery, There are lots of critical periods. So there's critical periods for attaching to your mom. There's a critical period for defining the balance of the inputs from your right eye versus your left eye. There's critical periods for touch. There's critical periods for learning languages. There's critical periods for riding your bike. And, you know, there are probably dozens of other critical periods that we haven't discovered yet that are, that are coming, right? And so, When I started my lab, we had this intuition that there must also be a critical period for forming attachments to your social group. So creating the hierarchies, creating the social group that you belong to. And we thought that because from the human literature, there was a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, teenagers are more susceptible to peer pressure, that adults don't value social interactions at the same level or to the same extent that juveniles do, and that when you get older, it's really hard to go back and learn a new culture. So for example, when I go to Japan, I always feel a little bit like a fish out of water. I feel like I'm constantly being rude and offending people with my, you know, handing credit cards over with one hand instead of two, you know, all these kinds of little rules that people who grew up in Japan understand intuitively, and I don't even know are are possibly wrong, right? And so because of all of those things, we thought there must be a critical period for this kind of peer-peer social reward learning. And so my brilliant postdoc, Roman Nardu, really did a Herculean experiment. I mean, he did this in like 900 animals, 400 females and 500 males, and looked across 15 different ages and just characterized the animal's ability to learn from their social environment across development. And when he did that like crazy hard experiment, what he found is is just like other critical periods for vision and for touch and for language and for imprinting behavior, that social reward learning had this critical period. And this was exciting because... Just by itself, that there is such a critical period could give us insights about why it's so much harder to cure PTSD if you were injured, you know, if your trauma happened when you were a child versus when you were an adult, or why it's so much easier to become addicted to drugs because of peer pressure when you're young, right? And so it had implications already just by itself. But because, you know, we were curious and we wanted to really drive home the point that this was similar to other critical periods, we wanted to see if we could reopen this critical period. And just to kind of back up for a second, neuroscientists have known for almost since it was first described, this critical period idea, that being able to reopen critical periods was going to be hugely important for almost all of um, neuropsychiatric disease. And that the reason that we're so terrible at curing diseases of the brain is because by the time we get around to intervening, the relevant critical period has closed. Okay, And so When I was a graduate student, the lab I worked in at at MIT was a a critical period lab, and we studied the visual critical period. And we had this war going on with another lab at Harvard, because the Harvard lab was saying, yes, there's going to be a master key for unlocking critical periods. And we were like, "Ah, anything that could do that to the brain is going to essentially cause amnesia, it's going to cause seizure, it's going to cause the brain to kind of fall apart structurally because of what we know are the mechanisms that constrain critical periods and close them down in the first place. So I was dead set against it. I was like, no way is there going to be a master key, right? And if there was, it would be very dangerous. And so nevertheless, I thought, well, you know, maybe MDMA, which is the psychedelic drug that has this incredibly pro-social effect in humans and as it turns out, octopuses and mice as well, maybe this is something special. And that because of this pro-social property that it has, we can use it to reopen this social critical period. And so we did that experiment. And when we finished that paper, which was published in 2019 in Nature, at the end of that paper, we were like, okay, done. We figured it out. MDMA reopens the social critical period. And it's all because MDMA is social and it's all about the social. And this has a lot of properties that are similar to the way that The clinical trials that the Midhoffers were doing and MAPS was sponsoring around MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And this was all about the social therapeutic alliance that we were being restoring with this ability to reopen the critical period with MDMA. And so at the end of that story, we thought we had figured it out and that it was really about MDMA's pro social effects, but we were wrong. Mm -hmm. So we were wrong because. In the next paper that also Roman was the first author on, the next experiment that he did is to say, okay, is it the case that other psychedelic drugs that are not pro-social in this way, are they able to reopen this critical period? And I was certain that they were not going to open, right? Because I was like, nobody's doing a 60-person cuddle puddle on LSD. It's just not going to work, right? And like, even though there were some other stories about, you know, how it made you open-minded and open to connectedness with the whole world, I was like, you know, phenomenologically, that's very different from this sort of intense pro-social feeling people describe on MDMA. But I was wrong. And not only did LSD do it, ketamine did it, psilocybin did it, I began, did it. And so, independent of whether or not it has this pro social quality, all of the psychedelics are reopening this critical period. And that was, I think, our first clue that they were the master key that we've been looking for for all this time.
0: Woohoo. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wild. Okay. This psychedelics, the master key for opening up this critical period. Now, was this only for social or is it expanded into like just opening up the critical period for really learning many new things so right now
1: like what's published and what we know for sure is is that the psychedelics all of them that we tested reopen the social critical period we think it will extend to other critical periods because of a number of other things that we discovered that are similar between the ability of psychedelics to open this critical period and mechanisms that have been discovered for other critical periods that they have overlapped. That's one big reason that we think that they're the master key for all critical periods, not just the social critical period. And the mechanisms, the two mechanisms that are overlapping with other critical periods is Metaplasticity, which I'll explain what that is in a second. And then the other one is the extracellular matrix. Okay. So both of those things are impacted by psychedelics in exactly the same way that we would predict based on what we know about metaplasticity and extracellular matrix for, say, the ocular dominance critical period or the, you know, somatosensory critical period. So the mechanistic overlap is one of the things that we
0: think supports the view that they are the master key. This is so exciting. Like, this is really exciting science.
1: Yeah, it's Whoa. cool. It's really cool. And, I, you know, I, I mean, honestly, when we first came up with the extracellular matrix idea, I was like, Oh, no. I can make do with the metaplasticity because in my circles, you know, my PhD advisor actually is the person who first coined the term metaplasticity. And people get that. People understand that. A lot of people like it as like the mechanism for critical period closure. But the synaptic physiologists don't like extracellular matrix as much. And so I was like, oh. I've actually never heard the term. So (laughs) could you describe? I've never heard that. Break it down for us. So break it down. All right. So when two neurons communicate with each other, there's a presynaptic side and a postsynaptic side. And the presynaptic releases neurotransmitter and the postsynaptic side sees that neurotransmitter and, you know, responds to it. It can respond to it by changing how strongly it responds to it. And it can also respond to it by changing the composition Of the receptors in that postsynaptic cell that are enabling it to learn better the next time there's an input like that, right? And so that change, especially over development, right? So a baby neuron is like a sponge. It can learn everything. And that's because it has receptors in its, in the postsynaptic cell and in the presynaptic cell that are really receptive to, really sensitive to those neural signals. And really good at transferring that, that signal into cellular programs that encode it as a memory. Okay, And so as the neurons mature, that ability to induce plasticity, induce those cellular changes, that goes away. And that's called metaplasticity. So that, that metaplasticity is the first thing that changes at the molecular cellular level to close critical periods. The other thing that happens is that as the brain gets older, the inputs to those cells, there are a lot more inhibitory inputs that start coming in and they mature and they sort of clamp down the excitability of the whole system. And that's called EI balance. And that's another mechanism that people have really focused on for closing critical periods. And then the third mechanism that people have identified as a mechanism for constraining your ability to learn closing critical periods has been maturation of the extracellular matrix. And so between those two synapses, there's a bunch of proteins and sugars and collagen-like molecules that are essentially stabilizing and organizing the connections between those two synapses. And that extracellular matrix you can think of it sort of as the grout between the tiles, right? And so if you wanted to really get your beautiful pattern like set into place, your memory set into place, you put in the grout and then it stabilized, it's set, it's crystallized, it's not moving around again, okay? And that's what the extracellular matrix is. It's that last step. And so what we found with the psychedelics is molecular evidence that one of the things that the psychedelics seem to be doing is breaking apart that extracellular matrix. So breaking that grout out and that removing of the grout is enabling those tiles or those synaptic weights or those synaptic plasticity to get rearranged and to form new patterns. And that new pattern of activity is the Revised memory around, let's say, the trauma or you know whatever it is that you wanted to change during that learning that's restored, that ability to learn that's restored by the psychedelics.
0: Let me just ask a question because that's brilliant and very scientific. But when you were finishing up, you were talking about what this means practically. Like, for example, you said it's kind of taking away the grout that is holding together the memory of the trauma as it is. So how does this transfer into human behavior, what your new science is showing? Give us some examples of how this could impact our lives. Basically, what we think
1: is, is that this critical period explanation, first of all, it explains a lot about how how come there's been so much clinical success with psychedelics for treating um, neuropsychiatric disease, right? Mm-hmm. And there are a couple things that's a couple features that are especially well explained by this kind of formulation, right? So one of them is that You know, we know from a lot of clinical studies that the set and setting, what people call the set and setting in psychedelics, really matters, right? So it's not like you're taking MDMA and going to a rave and suddenly poof, your PTSD goes away. Instead, what really seems to be important is that you're pairing the MDMA with psychotherapy. And so the way that the psychotherapy is designed is before the day of the trip you are meeting with the therapist, you're sort of discussing the trauma, you're identifying the ballpark realm of memories that are going to be important for the PTSD symptoms that you're having. The day of the trip, the therapists are mostly allowing the patients to kind of wander around in their memory space and find the relevant set of memories that have been primed by the previous day's conversations and try and come at them maybe from a different direction than they're used to getting at. you know, by going down the rabbit hole, like Alice in Wonderland and just kind of following the rabbit to wherever and trying to discover a new way of relating to those traumatic memories. And then afterwards, the real work of the therapy is to consolidate those memories and to integrate those new formulations of the trauma into the everyday experience and that and to to take that cognitive reappraisal if there was one and integrate it into all of the different ways that you live your life and what we think is and a lot of patients will say things like it was like... 20 years of therapy in one day, right? And so what we think is, is that the psychedelics are essentially enabling that process by loosening up that grout, the activity that sort of before the trip kind of therapy that people are doing, that is targeting the right neural circuit for becoming malleable again, for those memories to be reappraised and reformulated. And to my knowledge, no other explanation for how psychedelics are working can recapitulate this context dependence, right? So this requirement that you have this therapy, that you're in the right mindset and setting, everybody else who tried to understand what MDMA was doing was focused on things like the anxiolytic properties or the antidepressant properties, those properties that don't It doesn't matter whether you take MDMA at a rave or whether you take it at a therapist's office. They're, they're sort of constant, right? But this set and setting dependence, this context dependent is something that we see with the psychedelic mediated reopening of the critical period. So when we give MDMA in a social setting, we reopen the social context. And when we give MDMA in an isolation context, we do not reopen the social critical period. And so we think that What's going on is, is that the context, you can think of it as just the network of neurons that are being activated and that are being targeted for modification. And when that, that activation happens in the presence of a psychedelic, then they get kind of tagged for these should be modifiable, but all the rest of them are not getting tagged for modification And that's why they're not suffering from the melty brain problem that I was so worried about in graduate school. That's our our working model of how it's happening.
2: So then if you were to bring in someone that was working on the, I don't know the right terms, but something with the eyes in that critical, in in that under the master key, so the psychedelic plus the context of like, we're going to work on languages, or we're going to work on eyesight, or we're going to work on, I don't know, motor sensory, something like that, you're thinking now that it will open that critical period for that particular skill. That's right. Okay. Wow.
1: Stephanie, that's exactly our next experiment. We are in the process of testing the idea that all we have to do to change which critical period gets open is change the context. So if we want to open the social critical period and help people with PTSD, which is kind of typically a social type of injury... And then we give the psychedelic in a social context. But if we want and we give interdirected and eye masks and focused on psychotherapy, but if we want to reopen a motor critical period, because let's say somebody had a stroke and the physical therapy they got wasn't good enough and they didn't recover full motor function, then... It doesn't matter whether it's psychotherapy and IMAS and and interdirected, then the context we want to give is motor. And so we're encouraging patients to move around and to practice playing sort of virtual reality video games. And that we think will be useful for reopening a motor critical period. And so we're testing that right now. That's profound. <laughs> I mean, it will be big because, you know, I think right now, everybody's focused on psychiatric disease, and rightly so. That's a huge unmet need. And also the initial sort of underground work with psychedelics was really focused on that. And I think it's it's definitely the right place to start. But if we're right about this critical period idea, then it opens it up to all kinds of other neuropsychiatric diseases that, you know, really, we just don't have any good way of treating. And it really opens up not only which diseases we can treat, but I think it emphasizes, and and this is really kind of my main thing I really want to make sure people understand right now, the, the thing that I'm stuck on, is, is that the way that the psychedelics are disrupting medicine right now is, is that for the last sort of 50 years... We have really been stuck on this biochemical imbalance model of disease, right? So, you know, if you're depressed, it's because you don't have enough serotonin, and all we have to do is restore that imbalance in serotonin by giving you serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors. And then you can just take the bill and you'll be restored, your imbalance will be restored. But you know, that model has a lot of problems. So one of the problems is, is that you know, except for a few people who have genetic predisposition to very intense depression. It doesn't seem to be a cure. It seems to be more like symptom relief. And people typically have to be on SSRIs for the rest of their lives. It's really hard to get off of them. And a lot of people who are on them complain about, you know, having their emotional range being blunted, feeling like they're not really engaging in the world in the full spectrum of emotional responses. So on the other hand, you've got psychedelics, which you know, especially with the MAPS trials where you know this context and the psychotherapy have been such an important part of the treatment. What they have found is is that you know, one, two, or three doses of MDMA and the symptoms are resolved for life. I mean, they're the durability of some of these effects. You know, the durability studies are still ongoing, but you know, at least in the phase two trials there was a lot of evidence that these effects are very long lasting, lasting two, three years out uh, outside of the initial therapy. And what this suggests is, is that, you know, as opposed to the biochemical imbalance model, there is an opportunity to get durable cures for psychiatric disease by this learning model, right? And so our results are very much supporting the learning over the biochemical imbalance model. But I think there's still a, because of the sort of how long the biochemical imbalance model has been around and how many patients feel like they got some relief from SSRIs, there's a lot of pushback against this idea. And I think that if we can show that we can change which critical period gets reopened, we can just change it from psychotherapy to physical therapy and then we can learn, you know, motor function again. That will really I think move forward this idea that what's going on is restoring the ability to learn rather than fixing a biochemical imbalance.
2: Do you have a theory as to why there are and maybe this is really obvious but as to why there are chemicals in the nature in the natural world that reopen the critical periods of learning in human brains. I don't know if you study evolution, maybe you have a idea to, as to why this happens. Stephanie, do you want to come work in my lab? Because
1: you, you're like predicting all the <laughs> future experiments. So we do care a lot about that. And we've been asking the question, I mean, it's sort of more broadly than, than what you specifically asked. We've been asking, why do critical periods exist? Why do they closed? And why, why are there sort of ready-made mechanisms for reopening them? And so the first one I think is, is mostly agreed that they exist because there just aren't enough genes in the genome to encode every single behavior that we might need to, to know. So for example, there aren't 265 genes for the 265 possible languages. Instead, the language genes are all about how to learn a language, right? And that gives us the ability to adapt to whatever environment we happen to be born in. So that just because I come from Turkish parents doesn't mean that I'm born speaking Turkish. My first language is English because I was born here, right? So that's I think why they exist. Why they close is a little bit more um squishy we're still working on it but in general the idea is, is that you know it's energetically costly to be in that open state right like if you've seen kids, right? Like getting them out the door on a snow day, it's just brutal, right? Like they're just noticing everything. They're learning from their environment. They're like, oh, you know, right. And like, oh, taking the sock off, putting it back on, you know, like it just takes forever. And that's because Uh they're in that open state where they're just noticing everything. They are a sponge for sensitivity to what's in their environment and they're learning from that environment. But at some point, It's just easier to be able to grab your keys, stick your, you know, know where your phone is, know where your wallet is and get out the door, you know, in a kind of habit-based way without having to notice everything. And so that energetic cost is why, you know, it's thought that eventually we switch to habit and rote memories rather than constantly learning, right? So why are there ready-made mechanisms for reopening? And this is, we think, because... This is now really we're speculating. We don't know this for sure, but basically the idea is, is that as long as you're living in a stable environment, right? And where, where your group is the same, your language is the same, the statistics of the visual environment are the same then it makes sense to continue to live by the rules. But if there's a radical destabilization in your environment, for example, your whole social group gets eaten by a wolf if you're a mouse, right? Or you go through a global pandemic or you move to a new country and nobody speaks your language, right? In this case, with this radical destabilization, we think that that is a signal to the brain to say, hey, the world is different. You need to go back to that learning stage again. You need to go back and relearn the statistics of your environment so that you can adapt. And I think that there's some overlap between psychedelics' ability to do this, right? To essentially tell the brain something's radically different, an altered state of consciousness. Mechanistically, we think there's an overlap between that. And what we've known for a long time in critical periods research is that deprivation is another really good way to reopen critical periods. It's not all that clinically useful because who wants to go and live in solitary confinement for a month to reopen a critical period? Who wants to go and live in a dark room for a month to reopen a visual critical period, right? But we've known that those are ways that we can do it. Interestingly, I think that there are a lot of religious practices that are sort of co-opting these deprivation techniques to have mystical experiences that a sense in a sense are sort of reopening critical periods. So like Muhammad or, you know, whatever religious figures going and living in a cave for a month or going on silent retreats or living in a monastery and what the Zen Buddhists call what they're trying to get to with some of these mystical traditions is to get to beginner's mind. And if you were looking for a neurobiological term that sort of covers beginner's mind, reopening critical periods is it. And so that's why I think that they're there and they've been sort of hacked by these mystical traditions to kind of be able to see the world in a fresh way. Now, what might be the evolutionary selection pressures that are driving that? I mean, I think part of it is, you know, we live a long time and the world changes sometimes. And even as we get older, just thinking about social groups, you know, the chief dies or your mother dies or, and, and the social hierarchies have to be organized, reorganized. And so it might make sense that when you get to your midlife, You start to seek out spirituality and religious and meditation and yoga and all these other things, possibly because those are mechanisms to loosen you back up, reopen some critical periods and help you
0: adjust to the now changed world. Wow. First, not first, but basically, and some psychedelics open that period for longer periods of time. So I want you to talk about that. Also, like the thing that's coming to me, having like interviewed someone who runs dark caves and non-dual teachers that have reached true self-realization. You were talking about the child and the how much a child learns, right? And they're always in beginner's mind. We also know that I think it's like 18 months where a child suddenly realizes they have the me, the my. Before that, they kind of live in a non-dual reality. They think all of life is part of them. And you were talking a little bit earlier about consciousness and is this related somehow? Because beginner's mind, as you're talking about, is a layer of losing self, losing ego, and being in the perceptual fields of oneself as a gateway, as many Buddhist teachers talk about. Is there something about being less involved with your ego self and more... um, involved in your visual field, sensation field, that opens up the beginner's mind and that somehow psychedelics, when we think about them, and I don't know, this is a huge leap, but psychedelics in some ways, we're right in the sensory field. You know, we're just, I don't know. I mean, honestly, that's a big question. The second one is, you know, we
1: don't know, and I, I could wildly speculate, but I, I suspect that there's something about the psychedelics that because you get in that state of being in beginner's mind, induced by the psychedelics, that you tend to loosen up causal inferences, right? So those causal inferences that you've learned become more flexible again. And so I think that's also why children are so much more likely to believe in Santa Claus. They're not so much focused on learned relationships between A always produces B and B always produces C. And that flexibility enables them to kind of return to that state of loose associations between things. Now, in terms of the development of theory of mind and self-other recognition, I feel like that's a separate developmental process that is also interesting and possibly subject to a critical period. And honestly, I'm not the right person for that. I think, you know, Alison Gopnik has done some really cool work on child development and the ways that children learn and, you know, the sort of causal inferences that they make relating to self versus other. And, you know, I'm sure she has some brilliant ideas about how that relates to psychedelics, but I don't know. And I, you know, I haven't really done any research on that the easier question is the duration, which I can certainly speak to. One of the things that's been going on, going back to this debate over the biochemical imbalance versus the learning model of what psychedelics are doing, is that there's been this really hyper focus on the receptors, right? And so people have noticed for a while now that you can kind of break apart the psychedelics based on the duration of their effects, the quality of the acute subjective effects, and that there's some relationship between the quality of the acute subjective effects and which receptor they're binding to. So for example, people have noticed that drugs like ketamine and PCP, which are what I call dissociative psychedelics, you know, tend to be binding at you know NMDA receptors. Whereas hallucinogenic psychedelics like the psilocybin and LSD and mescaline and peyote, these are these are binding to the serotonin 2A receptor as well as a bunch of other receptor. But most of the effects seem to be mediated by the 2A receptor. And then you've got weirdos like MDMA and 2CB that are you know empathogenic and mostly like seem to be acting at you know serotonin transporter as as well as possible other mechanisms. And then you've got really weirdos like 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 ibogaine, that are onirogenic. We don't exactly know which receptor they're binding to. They seem to have some activity at the kappa opioid receptors as well as at the serotonin transporter as well. And so this focus on the receptor has led a lot of people to say, well, we don't care which psychedelic, we just are going to focus on the 2A receptor. And we're, in fact, going to try and define the psychedelics as a group as only being the 2A receptor binding. And those are the classical ones. Those are the special ones. And everything else is an outlier. But I really want to push back against that view because we know from the clinical studies that Ibogaine has shown you know, remarkable therapeutic efficacy for you know, in pilot studies and sort of preliminary open label kind of studies, but also, you know, off-label use, people doing it sort of underground to cure really entrenched addictions like heroin addiction. Ibogaine has been incredibly effective. And then we also know that in spite of all the press that MDMA is getting, you know, ketamine has kind of been around for a while. Ketamine has been used as an antidepressant. It's also effective, but it's very short acting. So one of the problems with ketamine is, is that even though it's better than SSRIs in terms of it comes on very quickly, it also comes off very quickly. And so, you know, within a week of being on ketamine, the depression symptoms tend to come back. And so we were curious about this relationship between the duration of these therapeutic effects. And something else that was different across psychedelics, and that's that the duration of the acute subjective effects is very different. So ketamine lasts about 30 minutes to two hours max. Psilocybin and MDMA are in the three to five hour range. LSD is a little bit longer, eight to 10 hours. And then ibogaine is this like outlier rock star that's lasting, you know, 36 to 72 hours. And so is there some relationship between the duration of these acute subjective effects and the durability of the therapeutic effect? And how does that relate to the critical period open state? And so what we found is is that they're proportional. So ketamine, which acts the shortest, keeps the critical period open for about two or three days. MDMA and psilocybin keeps it open for two weeks, but by three weeks, it's closed. LSD keeps it open for three weeks, but by four weeks, it's closed. And Ibogaine keeps it open the longest. The longest we tested was a month out, and it was still open. And so this is really important because what it's telling us is that mechanistically, critical period reopening and the acute subjective effects are related, and it really says you know, this hyper focus on dividing up the psychedelics based on their receptors, based on their differences in their acute subjective effects is not really the important part of their therapeutic effects. And then it also says that all of the drug companies out there who are trying to reduce the duration of the psychedelic effect, engineer out the psychedelic mm, side effects, mm-hmm. right, to get a molecule that they can, you know, essentially patent and give to people and they can leave the office without ever having to sit and do like the hard work of the psychotherapy. Those efforts, it, these results would suggest are going to fail. And then the third thing it really tells us is, is that when we're designing the clinical trials, We really need to be careful because the critical period stays open for a really long time after the acute effects are gone. Uh And so we really don't want to be doing damage to people by kind of putting them in this open state where they're vulnerable, where they're sensitive to the world the way that a child is and then releasing them back into their chaotic lives or possibly to be re-traumatized if they're living with their abuser. We really want to be careful about what we're doing to people when we
0: reintroduce this open state. First of all, you're a disruptor in the industry, I can see now, because you're <laughs> like challenging like these ideas that have been kind of the pin, what they're holding up for the science of these medicines. But First with the um, octopus, that changed. And now this whole critical period is changing how we're really looking at psychedelics across the board and what they're doing. Wow. And the piece that you just touched on is really fascinating to me because psychedelics can be such profound, incredible tools for transformation and change and healing. And yet without that piece that you're just discovering, that there is this window for Ibogaine a month, for some of the others shorter, that someone is really susceptible to the information coming in, what happens to them in that time period, what their thinking patterns are in that time period. You're almost rewiring in a way that you might not be aware of, not knowing that there's a critical period to be very sensitive and uh, very careful in.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that this is going to change the way that we do informed consent for these therapies. I think we're going to have to put in safeguarding rules that we're going to learn from actually the pediatricians, right? Because, you know, I do think it's important that we recognize that these drugs are very powerful and that they're profoundly changing you in ways that you might not have conscious awareness of, but that might really affect the way that you can be influenced, right? I mean, I think the the best example of this is Charles Manson, right? Like he essentially took a bunch of hippies Off the hate, and he gave them a bunch of LSD and indoctrinated them into his family and convinced them that he was, you know, some sort of messiah and that they would be doing, you know, the world a service if they participated in what he was calling helter skelter. And he took these hippies and turned them into murderers and would just by giving them lots and lots of LSD. And so, you know, I do think that there's a lot of enthusiasm for these drugs, but. We should also be respectful of how powerful they are and what kind of damage we could potentially be doing, you know, if they get in the wrong hands.
0: Yeah, you're touching there on some really important things, because I think he was also maybe MK Ultra was doing studies with psychedelics at the time. There's some evidence that Charlie Manson was part of that. Yeah, but it's also interesting, you mentioned the consent, and Steph and I are both trained psychedelic facilitators and sometimes I'm thinking like can someone really consent to certain medicine can you actually consciously consent when you literally have no idea how your life is actually going to change in particular you'd never mentioned and I'm curious about this 5-MeO-DMT because it's one of the shortest acting psychedelics yet it seems to have very long effects do you have any data on 5-MeO-DMT we never tested 5-MeO-DMT
1: our model predicts that it should have effects that are very similar to ketamine. So we think that because it's short act, and the reason we think that is, is that we have tested LSD at 50 times the dose that is the normal sort of psychedelic dose of LSD. And giving that extremely intense effect of LSD, doesn't prolong how long the critical period stays open. So our notion is is that the duration is what matters, not the intensity of the trip. You have to be in that sort of psychedelic range. Okay. But short-acting ones, I think, are going to put you in – I'll only open it the critical period for a short time. If you want like DMT and like we could test this, right? We could look at inhaled DMT versus DMT as ayahuasca, right? And then the prediction would be as ayahuasca because the trip lasts for eight to 10 hours then it would open for a really long time. And I think that would be a very clever experiment to really nail home the idea that it's not about the receptor binding. It's about how long you're in that state. And just to give sort of a metaphor for how I think that's happening mechanistically is is that imagine that you're on a Zoom call and the screen flickers. Probably not going to go home and reset the Wi-Fi after a couple of flickers. But if the screen freezes for five minutes, then you're going to probably start with resetting your your program, your Zoom program. You're going to log off and come back on. If that doesn't work, if you're still freezing if you're, or if you're freezing for like 10 minutes, then you're going to go reset the Wi-Fi. And I think that at the cellular level, when a psychedelic sits in its receptor for a really, really long time, it sends a signal to the neuron similar to your screen is frozen, hit the reset button, dissolve that extracellular matrix, get those baby receptors back in the synapse, and let's reset, right? And so that's why I think the duration matters.
0: Are we eventually going to be using psychedelics for optimization. I interviewed somebody recently who owns an Ibogaine clinic and she mentioned that people are coming now because maybe your work, I'm not sure, but basically that there's a new way of optimizing and of kind of biohacking. Yeah. Having it be biohacking. What's your thought on that? I think that's right. I
1: think that that will be, especially if this this learning idea catches on, right? Like, I I think that if we were just pretending that we're going to take these pills, and then suddenly we're going to speak Japanese, that would be more in line with the biochemical model. And I think that would be silly. But if we're using them, kind of with this idea that they're enabling or restoring our ability to learn, and we're cognizant of the fact that just because you've restored the ability to learn doesn't mean that you don't have to practice, right? Like, learning your first language takes seven, eight years before you're fluent and proficient and, you know, it takes a lot of practice, right? And so just because you're in that open state of the language critical period doesn't mean that you don't have to practice and execute in a lot of times. And so I think that the life hack approach will work well as long as people are sort of working under the understanding that what
2: they're doing is making it easier to learn, but they still have to practice. Wow. This is like answering so many questions about (laughs) just phenomenologically, like if I'm saying that word right, what I've seen with myself and other people, but not really knowing why it's working the way it's working. But like, yes, it's not just the psychedelic. It's also integration and having a practice and all the other things that Rick Doblin and all of us have been saying. Now I'm understanding why, because it's the windows open, but the input needs to happen for a few weeks afterward or longer. To actually change. And it's not neuroplasticity, I he, I've i heard you say now, it's, that's actually not the right...
1: Yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought that up. I do want to just reemphasize, David Olson's a chemist, and he's really coined this phrase, psychoplastogen, and he started a company called Delix, which is essentially trying to engineer out the psychedelic side effects and focused on psychoplastogen property of psychedelics because he's very much working under the biochemical imbalance model of psychedelics. But the thing that I keep reminding him of and trying to encourage people to think about is, is that psychedelics, first of all, we think that this this his discovery that they induce psychoplastogenic properties are actually a technical artifact of how he was doing those studies. So it's because they were doing them in a tissue culture dish and a tissue culture dish just doesn't have all of the components that normally constrain critical periods. So it's pretty easy to induce plasticity in that. But if you repeat those experiments in adult tissues, you don't get those results. So we haven't been able to reproduce those hyperplasticity type of responses in adult tissues and in adult animals. But beyond that, it's important to recognize that there are drugs that are very good in inducing plasticity. They're called addictive drugs, right? So every single drug of abuse is known to have you know robust plasticity effects and induce robust amounts of plasticity. Not plasticity, too much plasticity is not always a good thing. We see increased amounts of plasticity in autism. We see increased amounts of plasticity in cancer. More plasticity is not good, right? Like it's not universally good. I think the nuanced difference, this meta-plasticity, is it's not inducing plasticity. It's just releasing some of the constraints So that under the appropriate learning conditions, right, you can learn appropriate associations again the way that you were as a child. And so that's the difference between metaplasticity and hyperplasticity. And when you just throw around the word plasticity, I think you really miss that nuance that I think most neuroscientists understand. Because in the beginning, we were all excited about plasticity. And just like a chemist who's just new to the synaptic plasticity world, 30 years ago, that's what we thought. But 30 years of neuroscience research has taught us that not all plasticity is good plasticity and that,
0: you know, we want to be more careful in the way that we describe these things. Interesting, because I do think these terms come up like that, neuroplasticity, and then you just hear it everywhere. You know, everybody is like, just says it because it's what we're hearing. So it's so nice to have you here and get these new terms and kind of new science, and a new way of understanding how psychedelics are working in our brain and the future potential of these medicines, both their effects for us to learn and grow and also cut some of the risks due to this critical period.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. How has it been for you to, I assume you weren't doing these grand press tours and being interviewed <laughs> in this way and being on the Tim Ferriss show and, and Wired magazine and everything like that. Like, I don't know, most scientists don't necessarily get that much press attention. So I, I'm just curious how this has been for you to be so public with all of this.
1: I have to say it's it's very gratifying. I mean, most of the time when we do research, We're doing it because we're just curious and I would do this job even if I was a billionaire. You know, it's just what I enjoy. You know, I just do it because it's fun. But, and I don't really care if the rest of the world thinks it's interesting, but I have to say, you know, I did go to medical school. I never did a residency, but I do care about... You know, making an impact and I think probably the most gratifying thing about being able to talk about this and reaching out, especially to people who are therapists and clinicians who are really implementing these therapies. Is when I hear, you know, oh, we were in a ketamine clinic and we changed the way that we were implementing ketamine after we heard your podcast because it means that ketamine's more like the other psychedelics and that you know we're missing an opportunity if we don't pair it with with therapy. And you know, as somebody who's used to working on something that nobody else in the world cares about, it is just deeply satisfying to hear that it's changing clinical practice. Yeah. So that's that's been wonderful.
2: And making people's lives better and healing people.
1: Yeah. Hope so. Hope so. Yeah.
2: I had one more
0: thought just, and if it's too long to get into it, maybe you'd come back and talk about it. But I am curious about at some point um, learning more about psychedelics and autism and your work in autism. So I don't know if you'd be willing to come back someday and talk about that. There is an excitement for psychedelics in autism,
1: but I'm a little nervous about it. I think we need to be careful about using psychedelics in autism. And I, and I know that there are some people who've written books and who are, you know, I'm an autistic person. I took psychedelics. I feel better. But, you know, the type of autism that I study is the genetic form of autism. It's the first one that was ever described. It's the one that's the most common cause and it's called fragile X. And we have some evidence not just for my work but other labs as well that that is a disease that is characterized by a failure of critical periods to close properly so in these patients i think it would be premature to jump in and try and reopen their critical periods unless we had some evidence that we were going to be able to do that without Causing more damage or harm, right? And so the way that I'm imagining that we might use psychedelics for diseases like autism is that we correct whatever genetic or whatever other injury that happened early on, biochemical imbalance, possibly in some of these causes of autism. And then because by the time we get around to doing that correction, the social reward learning critical period is closed. If we pair that intervention, with a psychedelic and reopen that social critical period, then we might be able to get them to learn from their social environment again on all the ways that they missed during their normal developmental time period when they would have gotten that kind of learning and memory done. But again, I just want to be really, really careful. I don't want to be seen as endorsing the idea that we should be giving psychedelics to people with schizophrenia and autism, which might be related genetically to diseases. And so I want to exercise some
0: restraint and some caution in that. Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Big, 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 huge work.
1: Yeah, so much fun. So glad to get to be here. And thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for explaining everything and talking us through it and just for doing the work that you're doing for all of our benefit. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed today's show and want to help build a more beautiful, conscious, and loving world, please share this content with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. And I'd really appreciate you taking the time to write a review so that others can find these amazing conversations. And if you'd like to see a video version of the show, you can find me on YouTube. Feel free to reach out and connect with me at thepsychedelicmom.com or message me on Instagram at the mom. And remember, you are the medicine.